Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, your recommended daily intake of politics. I'm Andrew Harrison. A couple of years ago, the casual observer might have thought that the political fortunes of Benjamin Netanyahu were seriously on the wane. Back in opposition, indicted on charges of breach of trust, bribery and fraud, and with his friend and patron Donald Trump out of office, he was a diminished figure on the world stage. But politics moves fast and nowhere faster than in Israel. At the end of December, Netanyahu returned as Prime Minister for the third time at the head of a new ultra-nationalist coalition. His cabinet has been described as the furthest right in Israel's history. The new Minister of National Security, who amongst other things oversees the police, is Itamar Ben-Gavir, leader of the Jewish Power Party. He was once convicted of incitement to racism and terrorism and has called for the expulsion of Israel's Arab citizens. New finance minister Betzalel Shmotrich has called himself a proud homophobe and described gay pride parades as worse than bestiality. The new government is committed to a hardline agenda of expanding Israeli settlements, weakening the judiciary and guaranteeing the Jewish people's exclusive and inalienable right to all parts of the land of Israel. Netanyahu himself insists he'll preserve Israel as a largely liberal state. I won't let anybody do anything to LGBT or to deny our Arab citizens their rights, he said. But will he? And does he even want to? With me to help explain what Israel's new government means is Anshul Pfeffer, Haaretz columnist and The Economist's Israel correspondent, who was born in Manchester and moved to Israel in 1981. Hello, Anshul. How are you doing? Good afternoon and good whatever time you listeners are listening to this. <laughs> Andrew, I'm fine, thank you. Most important question, City or United? United for my sins. Oh, God. Right. Well, let's move on. First up, full confession. Like most British people, I look on Israel with kind of total confusion, wishing for peace, without a lot of hope. But I also have friends in Israel who were pretty much in despair when the new government was announced. Some were saying, I didn't move here to live under clerical rule. How real are those worries? Because it is a different changeover for the Israeli government, isn't it? Well, I think the the worries are, are real because we have a different government than one we've ever had in the past. I mean, Netanyahu, this is Netanyahu's sixth government. He's, he's the first prime minister in Israeli history to form a government after an election for the sixth time, breaking, or he, he already equaled, now he's broken David Ben-Gurion, Israel's founding prime minister's record. And this is not like his previous governments. Netanyahu, in his previous governments, had options to bring in centre, centre-left parties, who could in could provide him for room with room for maneuver that he could always say to some of the more outrageous demands from from right wing parties guys we have other partners in this in this coalition and we can't do everything we want he could present himself as an ultra right winger to to the right wing while being as he has been in the past cautious and rather risk averse now he doesn't have that choice because the centrists and centre-left parties have all refused to sit in a government with him because of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the corruption charges that he's facing. And the only government that he has, and this is also the reason why it took him so long, five elections, to finally win a majority in this saga of, of elections that have been going on since 2019. Now he has a government where he's fully reliant on the far right and the ultra orthodox religious parties, and therefore the worries uh, in this case are, are real. Your New Year piece in Haaretz was headlined "The End of Israeli Democracy." It's real, but can it still be prevented? Is it really that bad? Is it an existential threat to democracy as opposed to just a very extreme government? But we all have different definitions of what democracy is, and we we can see in other countries around the world. You've got Hungary, for, for example, which calls itself officially an illiberal democracy. And there's a 
definitions of democracy in which it's the will of the people and therefore it's also being called a, mo- a, a majoritarian dictatorship. And I think in, in the West we have a more liberal definition of democracy that is the majority can't just do whatever it wants and there is uh, various uh, protections for for minority groups. And this certainly does seem to be a government which claims that it's democratic, but it's veering towards the liberal majoritarian type of, of democracy. What does the new government represent in the Israeli populace? Because it does, as you say, that religious parties are involved. It seems very aligned with the religious rights and an orthodox population, which the, the likes of, of me in Britain don't fully understand how they fit into Israeli society. We you know with the, you know, not doing military service, the, the tax arrangements and so on. So when we talk about orthodoxy in, in Judaism, there, there are different types of orthodoxy. There's modern orthodoxy, more liberal orthodoxy, where people who are observant of the various commandments of the Torah and Jewish law, but it's not, it's not in any way an obstacle for them to be part of modern society and to be part of a democratic society. And that is a very large part of, of the Orthodox community. There are other parts of the Orthodox community, more nationalist and what we also call ultra-Orthodox or Haredi, to use the Hebrew term, which are much more isolationist and really don't have uh, much time for any modern or, or Western ideas of politics and society. And they are quite uh, heavily represented in this, uh, in this uh, government. Now, in Israel... Roughly, the general population, there's about 11 or 12% ultra-Orthodox, and a similar, uh, perhaps a slightly lower number of the nationalist Orthodox. So they're at most 20% of, uh, of the general population. But in this government, they are the ones who are guaranteeing Netanyahu's majority, and therefore he has to, within the confines of the coalition, prom- he's had to give them control of quite a large number of, of important uh, government departments or ministries, and he's had to promise them uh, various things where it comes to policy. Now, at the same time, he's you, you quoted something that he said, he said he's been saying it repeatedly, that in, in this government won't harm anybody's civil rights and no minority will be oppressed. But this is a, a case of Netanyahu saying one thing in these, those agreements with his partners and then saying something very different to the public. Now, even if he does hold true to his to his promises to the public, he's putting himself in a situation where he is the one who's safeguarding the freedoms of uh, of the Israeli public, rather than them being protected by the government and by law. Tell us about Itamar Ben Gvir and the Jewish Power Party. What does he stand for? What does the party stand for? So Ben Gvir is a politician who, for many years, was on the fringes of uh, of Israel. He was seen as untouchable. He he was a member back in the 90s of a party called Kach, which was a very far-right, uh, some, will, some will call it Jewish supremacist party, certainly, and certainly anti-Arab party. And in the early 1990s, the party was prescribed, it was, it, it was made illegal, it was actually defined as a terror organization for the involvement of a ver- various of its members in terror attacks against uh, Arabs or Palestinians. And at the time, Bengvi was a, was in his late teens. He was the head of the of the youth department of this party, and the party still is officially illegal in Israel, the Kach Party. But it's since and Bengvi, in then in his twenties, went on to study law, and he's basically for the last twenty odd years been working at trying to bring the party 
just enough within the confines of the law to make it legal and for it to be able to run in the elections because the original party certainly isn't, isn't allowed to run in an election because it's an illegal organization and make it just legal enough for it to exist as a political party. But even then, for, even when he succeeded at that and he renamed the party, Jewish Power is, is a current name, but it, it's gone through different names over the years. Even when he succeeded at that, he was still seen as someone that no other political party, certainly not a mainstream party like Netanyahu's Likud party, would ever cooperate with. In the same way that you wouldn't imagine the Conservative Party in, in Britain uh, having any kind of formal cooperation with the National Front or any of those, or the BMP and those similar organizations of the very far right in Britain. Even though they're both of the right, there's a very clear divide between establishment and mainstream parties and that type of party. And that was where Bengaviru was for many years. Now, what's changed is Netanyahu, because of his legal issues, because of the fact that the last few years He's been someone that the center left won't uh, cooperate with because of his uh, because of his trial. It means that his his room for maneuver, his room for coalition building, has shrunk, and therefore he needs to somehow eke out as many votes as he can from the far right. And that's why he kind of forced a number of far right parties, including the most far right of them, Jewish Power, to merge. Now, Israel's uh, Israel has a proportional representation electoral system, which means that. Also, small parties uh, are represented, but there's a threshold. And the current threshold is 3.25%. So if you don't get three and a quarter percent of the vote, you won't be represented. And anybody who voted for you, those votes are, are wasted. Netanyahu, to get his majority, decided that he will take even the most far-right and once untouchable parties into his political camp. And by... By doing that with Ben Gvir's Jewish power, by, by forcing him to, to merge with other parties and basically protesting, if you do this, I will make you part of my government. You can be a minister. Yes, you maybe have to make a few compromises by, by merging with other parties that for, for perhaps on the outside uh, seem very similar to each other, but they have that, their own nuances. And that's why in the past they didn't run together in the same, in, on the same list. By doing that, he's basically eked out every last far-right vote, which in the past would have been lost because of the, of the electoral threshold. Now they're counted, and that's what's given him finally his majority. And in doing so, he's made these parties from untouchables into legitimate parts of the, of the, of the Israeli political establishment, and now also their leaders are senior ministers in his new government. So the lessons from America and Europe, and you know, you, you mentioned Hungary, is that once you mainstream the extreme right, they don't go away. Has Netanyahu taken Israel across a Rubicon here? Then it does feel like that because, like I said, not that long ago, this would would have been unthinkable. And Netanyahu himself spoke out against these parties in the past. And if you would have asked him a few years ago, would you ever be in coalition? He would have ruled that out. When Netanyahu joined politics in the nineteen eighties. Likud was totally boycotting the, these parties. The founder of the Kach party, of which Bengvir's Jewish power is now an evolution of that party, was a man called Rabbi Meir Kahana. He served for one term in the Knesset in Israel's parliament back in the 1980s. And every time he got up to speak 
in the Knesset, nearly the entire Knesset, every other member that left the hall and wouldn't sit there in the hall while while he spoke. And that included all the members of Netanyahu's Likud. And now Netanyahu is in formal partnership with that party. So yes, it is very much a Rubicon that has been passed here. Ben Gavir has been doing a very a couple of very provocative things. There seems to be something every day. He's just announced a, a ban on flying Palestinian flags in any public places. He made a visit to Temple Mount, the very contested site, which also holds the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The former Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, tweeted that you don't go up to the Temple Mount because people will die. What is the agenda here? It seems to be mirroring a kind of Trumpist thing of like the... the you know, the acid test of any policy or any move is, will it wind up the liberals? Well, it didn't, you know, this, this idea of, of of symbolism, and some people would see it as empty symbols, and some people, these are symbols worth dying for, wasn't invi- wasn't invented by Donald Trump. Every Every country, every nation has these political symbols that sometimes politicians know to respect, but perhaps not to go too close to, like they're like kryptonite. And... The more nationalist, more populist a party or a politician is, the more they indulge in using these systems for their own for their own campaigns and to whether it's to provoke or, or, or to somehow draw out a certain type of vote. And Bengaviria certainly does that. And you mentioned both Temple Mount, which is the Temple Mount and the Alaxa compound, which is ground zero of, of the Israel Palestine conflict. It's the place which in the past politicians Make, saying things or going there regarding that have have caused a serious escalation. Now he went there last week, and we haven't seen any any violence since then. So in this case uh, we may have uh, dodged a bullet. But the fact that Bengvir is willing to play with explosives in this way and is is very worrying. And the, 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 and the same goes with the Palestine flag. I mean, the Palestine flag it's a flag. It's a symbol. What does it really mean? Who, you know, it means to the Palestinians a symbol for them of their nationality and perhaps their future statehood. And for many Israelis, it's a symbol of some of a threat to, to the Jewish state. But to go and, and make this into an issue and say, I'm going to send the police whenever, wherever somebody flies one of these flags and we're going to confiscate that, it's once again asking for trouble. It's a type of, of gesture politics which, uh, which nationalist, uh, polit- populist politicians like to use and they, they seem oblivious of the of the risks. I want to ask you about the political and the security temperature in Israel, because, you know, over here, it's kind of almost impossible to understand what's really happening in the relationship between Israel, the Palestinians, the, the Israeli Arab population. All we see is tensions are high or nothing. How high are tensions at the moment? That's a very difficult question to answer, because we're not talking about the Palestinians in the sense of that there is one amorphic group of Palestinians. The Palestinians, just within this area between the river, the, jo- the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, are living in four different areas when it comes to jurisdiction and, and legal status. So you've got Palestinians who are citizens of Israel and they can vote for the Knesset, they're, they're represented at the Knesset. There obviously is a level of discrimination there, but at least in a, in a technical de jure sense they're equal Israeli citizens. Then you have Palestinians living in East Jerusalem, so they're under Israeli jurisdiction. They don't have full rights to vote for the Knesset, though they can vote in local elections and they have certain and they have freedom of movement. And then you've got Palestinians living in the West Bank who are technically under the Palestinian Authority, which is a semi-autonomous government, 
and you've got Palestinians in Gaza who are living under under Islamist Hamas regime. In every case, there's a different level of tension uh, between these groups in Israel, and the, and it's also it's not just about what the tension is between the population. There's also the various calculations that the different leaderships have of whether or not to have open hostilities at any given time. And right now, none of the governments involved, whether it's the Israeli government or the Palestinian Authority or Hamas in Gaza, have an interest in open warfare and in having another round of rockets being fired or another intifada and so on. So we're talking about tensions at a much lower grassroots levels. And here you've got various much smaller groups and also many individuals who are feeling that they are in in the situation where the only thing that can somehow solve or do anything for them w- would be violence, and we have seen an escalation over the last year or so in these attacks by for, by Palestinian individuals of uh, much more violence coming from Jewish settlers in the West Bank. So on the one hand, it looks that the, it looks like an escalation when you see all these cases in uh, in total. There's been there were more Palestinians killed in the West Bank in the last year than they have been in, in nearly two decades. Uh, but on the other hand, we've also not seen for the last, uh, for more than a year and a half, a serious outbreak of violence. And I think, I mean, there was a, there was a short three-day sort of flurry of rocket firing and airstrikes at the beginning of August uh, in 22 in Gaza, but that was, very, that was a very, very short outbreak, and that was also caused by, by, a, by a smaller Palestinian group called the Islamic Jihad, it's hard to to pinpoint a real escalation towards the kind of wars we've seen in, over the last 20 years in Gaza or the intifada that we had uh, by now over 20 years ago where really violence breaks out across the across the board but what we did see in the past is that whenever these things happen it wasn't that easy to predict we didn't know what would be the pinpoint event that would ignite that kind of thing and Really, what we're seeing now with someone like Benver in government and some of the other ministers who now have a lot of power and the fact that Netanyahu can't really rein them in is that we have a lot more irresponsible actors just blundering around in this china shop. And I'm going to use lots of mixed metaphors now, but any of the sparks that these irresponsible actors uh, are, are, are letting fly now could ignite the, the powder keg. I want to ask you just in closing a bit about what it's like living in Israel now, because I mean, I know, like I mentioned my friends that, you know, moving to Israel, making Aliyah, as it's known, has a special meaning for Jews that if you're not Jewish, you don't really get. You're moving to a, a place that has a special status, possibly unique in the world. Does this change to a hard right government, this sort of existential moment? What's that doing to the liberal wing of Israelis? Is it a bit of a, a culture shock to them almost? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on how much time you spend reading or, or, or watching the news. The, the, you know, Israel is it's a, it's a quite a small country, but it has so many communities and, and micro-communities and people living in different places, very much mixing with their own community and not not having much to do with other communities. So you don't, on a daily basis, if you've chosen to live in a certain part of Israel, you're living in that part and you're not feeling politics changing uh, things so much. And it very much depends on, 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 on what your cultural, I mean, it's much, it's not necessarily just about whether you're Israeli or Palestinian or Jewish or Muslim. 
it's also very much about your connection to religion and your and, and your social economic class. It's a very divided uh, population. And you know, if you live in Tel Aviv, so you're living mainly in the secular middle or upper class area, and, and nothing has changed there in the last few weeks since this new government has come along. And the same is true if you're an ultra-Orthodox Jew, so you're living in a, in a neighborhood where most of the people are like you, or if you're an Israeli-Palestinian, and the same is true there as well. You're living in a place where uh, most of the people on your street and in your neighborhood are like you. And this has been the situation in Israel for many decades now. One government coming along isn't going to change that necessarily unless, like I said, unless, unless we see a major escalation in violence. So it really is a feeling, it is a culture shock seeing this new government, but that's just if you, if you spend time, if you spend time consuming news. For most Israelis, life is, I mean, for all Israelis, life has continued as before, and we're not yet seeing any real change in, in what's happening. The real question is what's, what are the more long-term uh, uh, dynamics here? And you know, for the Palestinians and Israelis, it's whether the occupation of the West Bank will continue and this feeling of, of conflict and friction between them will continue. And who knows when that breaks out. And within the Israeli Jewish society, it's also very much a question of which of the religious groups is becoming more dominant or becoming more dominant in the sense that, Who's, who's, who controls the economy, who controls school systems, who controls social uh, services. And this does have a, uh, have a long-term effect. And it, and it may not have, have nothing to do with Israelis, Palestinians. It could do have things to do with whether we, what the role of women are in, in society, how, how well they're integrated, whether people, Israelis who came from, I mean, you, you talked about your friends coming from, who've moved from Britain to Israel. That's a very tiny group. There are much larger groups of immigrants coming from, from Russia and Ukraine, because Israel does still have a law whereby if you, if you, if you're of Jewish heritage and you can get Israeli citizenship and there's war now in Ukraine and things are, are pretty crap in Russia, we've had 70,000 immigrants just over the last year, from just from Russia and Ukraine. And that's, for a country of less than 10 million people, that's a huge number. And it's continuing all the time. So what will their place be in Israeli society? Will they change Israeli society? Will will Israelis welcome these Russian or Ukrainian speakers? These are, uh, these are as big issues as Israel-Palestine. And this new government, who is not very friendly towards that type of immigrant, because that type of immigrant tends to be very secular, not to have... A strong cultural Jewish identity, and this government is very big on Jewish identity. So these questions are you know, could cause as much tension within Israel as all these things we've we've, we've just been talking about about someone like Ben Gvir provoking the Palestinians, and this new government wants to do ma- major changes to the legal system and weaken the Supreme Court. That's another thing that is bringing Israelis out into the streets. And this new government wants to have more of an influence on, uh, of more religious influence on, uh, on education programs. So if you're a, if you're a secular parent, you don't want your kids being forced to, to, to learn, uh, values that are foreign to your way of life. So all these things are, are, are being brought now to this very tense place that we're not yet feeling it in our daily lives, but it's something that's very much now at the, at the top of the news. And this could be something that would really change Israeli society over the next generation. 
Angel Pfeffer. I feel like I've learned more about Israel in the past 20 minutes than in the preceding 20 years. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Andrew. We'd love to have you back on at some point. I'm sure that the region produces quite a lot of news in its time. So with a bit of luck, we'll have you back on soon. Maybe next time we can talk about football in Manchester. Now, let's not get into the controversial stuff. (laughs) That would be too dangerous. Listeners, do follow Anshul on Twitter. He is a fantastic uh, source of news and views. Of course, don't forget to follow us on your favourite podcast app. We're out with a new podcast explainer, interview or investigation every single morning, seven days a week. If you want to support the podcast on Patreon, then do search Patreon Bunker Podcast, where you'll find out how to back our producers, journalists and presenters and keep the lights on here in Bunker Towers. Many thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katja Tomaszewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>